Chapter 12, Part 2 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Quimper. Chapter 12. Round the World on a Man-of-War Continued. The African Station, Part 2. While at the Cape, the Duke of Edinburgh laid the foundation of a grand graving dock, an adjunct to the Table Bay Harbour Works, a most valuable and important addition to the resources of the Royal Navy, enabling the largest ironclad to be repaired at that distant point. The dock is 400 feet long and 90 feet wide. For more than 40 years, previously frequent but unsuccessful efforts had been made to provide a harbour of refuge in Table Bay. Now, in addition to this splendid dock, it has a fine breakwater. Officers of the Royal Navy may occasionally get the opportunity afforded the Prince of attending an elephant hunt. From the neighbourhood of the Cape itself, the biggest of beasts has long retired, but 300 miles up the coast at Featherhead Bay, where there is a settlement, it is still possible to enjoy some sport. To leave the port or town of Neisner, where, by the way, the Duke was entertained at a great feed of South African oysters, was found to be difficult and perilous. The entrance to the harbour is very fine, a high cliff comes down sheer to the sea on one side, while on the other there is an angular bluff with a cave through it. As the petrol steamed out, a large group of the ladies of the district waved their handkerchiefs, and the elephant hunters cheered. It was now evident from the appearance of the bar that the petrol had not come out a moment too soon. A heavy sea of rollers extended nearly the whole way across the mouth of the harbour and broke into a long thundering crest of foam, leaving only one small space on the western side clear of actual surf. For this opening, the petrel steered, but even there the swell was so great that the vessel reared and pitched fearfully and touched the bottom as she dipped astern into the deep trough of the sea. The slightest accident to the rudder, and nothing short of a miracle could have saved them from going on to the rocks, where a tremendous surf was breaking. Providentially, she got out safely, and soon the party was transferred to the raccoon, which returned to Simon's Bay. On his return from the elephant hunt, the prince gave a parting ball. A capital ballroom, 135 feet long by 44 wide, was improvised out of an open boathouse by a party of blue jackets, who by means of ship's lanterns, flags, arms arranged as ornaments and beautiful ferns and flowers, effected a transformation as wonderful as anything recorded in the Arabian Nights, the crowning feature of the decorations being the head of one of the elephants from the Kanaisna, surmounting an arch of evergreens. Most of the visitors had to come all the way from Cape Town, and during the afternoon were to be seen flocking along the sands in vehicles of every description. 
many being conveyed to Simonstown, a part of the distance, in a Navy steam tender, or the Galatea steam launch. The ball was, of course, a grand success. This not being a history of Cape Colony, but rather of what the sailor will find at or near its ports and harbours, the writer is relieved from any necessity of treating on past or present troubles with the Boers or the natives. Of course, everything was tinted couleur de rose at the prince's visit, albeit at that very time the colony was in a bad way, with over-speculation among the commercial classes, a cattle plague, disease among sheep, and a grape disease. Mr. Frederick Boyle, whose recent work on the diamond fields has already been quoted, and who had to leave a steamer short of coal at Saldanha Bay, seventy or eighty miles from Cape Town, and proceed by a rather expensive route, presents a picture far from gratifying of some of the districts through which he passed. At Saldanha Bay, agriculture gave such poor returns that it did not even pay to export produce to the Cape. The settlers exist, but can hardly be said to live. They have plenty of cattle and sheep, sufficient maize and corn, but little money. Mr. Boyle describes the homestead of a Boer substantially as follows. Reaching the home of a farmer named Vasson, he found himself in the midst of a scene quite patriarchal. All the plain before the house was white with sheep and lambs, drinking at the dam or in long troughs. The dam is an indispensable institution in a country where springs are scarce and where a river is a prodigy. It is the new settler's first work, even before erecting his house, to find a hollow space and dam it up, so as to make a reservoir. He then proceeds to make the best sun-dried bricks he can and to erect his cottage, usually of two and rarely more than three rooms. Not unfrequently there is a garden, hardly worthy of the name, where a few potatoes and onions are raised. The farmers, more especially the Dutch, are the largest and heaviest in the world. At an early age their drowsy habits and copious feeding run them into flesh. Quote, Three times a day the family gorges itself upon lumps of mutton, fried in the tallowy fat of the sheep's tail, or else, their only change of diet, upon the tasteless fricadelle, kneaded balls of meat and onions, likewise swimming in grease. Very few vegetables they have, and those are rarely used. Brown bread they make, but scarcely touch it. Fancy existing from birth to death upon mutton scraps, half-boiled, half-fried in tallow. So doth the boar. It is not eating, but devouring with him. And fancy the existence. Always alone with one's father, mother, brothers and sisters, of whom not one can do more than write his name, scarce one can read, not one has heard of any event in history, nor dreamed of such existing things as art or science or poetry, or aught that pertains to civilization. Unquote. An unpleasant picture, truly, and one to which there are many exceptions. It was doubtful whether Mr. Vasson could read. 
His farm was several thousand acres. The ancient law of Cape Colony gave the settler 3,000 mochen, something more than 6,000 acres. He was not obliged to take so much, but whatever the size of his farm might be, it must be circular in shape, and as the circumference of a property could only touch the adjoining grounds, it follows that there were immense corners or tracts of land left waste between. Clever and ambitious farmers in these later days have been silently absorbing said corners into their estates, greatly increasing their size. The Cape cannot be recommended to the notice of poor emigrants, but to capitalists it offers splendid inducements. Mr. Irons, in his work on the Cape and Natal settlements, cites several actual cases showing the profits on capital invested in sheep farming. In one case, £1,250 realised. In about three years, £2,860, which includes the sale of the wool. A second statement gives the profits on an outlay of £2,225 after seven years. It amounts to over £8,000. Rents in the towns are low, beef and mutton do not exceed fourpence per pound, while bread, made largely from imported flour, is a shilling and upwards per four-pound loaf. So many sailors have made for the diamond field since their discovery, from the Cape, Port Elizabeth or Natal, and so many more will do the same as any new deposit is found, that it will not be out of place here to give the facts concerning them. In 1871, when Mr. Boyle visited them, the ride-up cost from 12 to 16 pounds, with additional expenses for meals, etc. Of course, a majority of the 50,000 men who have been congregated at times at the various fields could not and did not afford this but it is a tramp of 750 miles from Cape Town or 450 from Port Elizabeth or Natal. From the Cape, a railway for about 60 miles eases some of the distance. On the journey up, which reads very like Western experiences in America, two of three mules were 26 hours and a half in harness and covered 110 miles. South Africa requires a society for the prevention of cruelty to animals, one would think. Mr. Boyle also saw another way by which the colonist may become rapidly wealthy, in ostrich farming. Broods purchased for five to nine pounds in three years gain their full plumages and yield in feathers four to six pounds per annum. They become quite tame, are not delicate to rear, and are easily managed. And they also met the down coaches from the fields, on one of which a young fellow, almost a boy, had no less than 235 carrots with him. At last they reached Neil, a camp, a place which once held 5,000 workers and delvers, and in November 1872 was reduced to a few hundred like the deserted diggings in California and Australia. It had, however, yielded largely for a time. The words, here be diamonds, 
are to be found inscribed on an old mission map of a part of the colony of the date of 1750 or thereabouts. In 1867, a trader up country near Hopetown saw the children of a boer playing with some pebbles picked up along the banks of the Orange River. An ostrich hunter named O'Reilly was present, and the pair of them were struck with the appearance of one of the stones, and they tried it on glass, scratching the sash all over. A bargain was soon struck. O'Reilly was to take it to Cape Town, and there Sir P. E. Woodhouse soon gave him five hundred pounds for it. Then came an excitement, of course. In 1869, a Hottentot shepherd named Svartsboy brought to a country store a gem of eighty-three and a half carats. The shopman, in his master's absence, did not like to risk the two hundred pounds worth of goods demanded. Svartsboy passed on to the farm of one Niekerk, where he asked and eventually got four hundred pounds. Niekerk sold it for twelve thousand pounds the same day. Now, of course, the excitement became a fevered frenzy. Supreme among the camps around Pniel reigned Mr. President Parker, a sailor who, leaving the sea, had turned trader. Mr. Parker, with his councillors, were absolute in power, and all in all administered justice very fairly. Ducking in the river was the mildest punishment. The naval cat came next, while dragging through the river was the third grade. Last of all came the spread eagle, in which the culprit was extended flat, hands and feet staked down, and so exposed to the angry sun. In a short time, the yield from the various fields was not under £300,000 per month, and claims were sold at hundreds and thousands of pounds apiece. Then came a time of depression when the dealers would not buy, or only at terribly low prices. Meanwhile, although meat was always cheap, everything else was very high. A cabbage, for example, often fetched ten shillings, a watermelon fifteen shillings, and onions and green figs a shilling apiece. Forage for horses was half a crown a bundle of four pounds. Today they are little higher on the field than in other parts of the colony. That a number of diggers have made snug little piles ranging from two or three to eight, ten or more thousand pounds is undeniable, but they were very exceptional cases after all. The dealers in diamonds, though, often turned over immense sums very rapidly. And now, before taking our leave of the African station, let us pay a flying visit to Natal, which colony has been steadily rising of late years, and which offers many advantages to the visitor and settler. The climate, in spite of the hot Sirocco which sometimes blows over it, and the severe thunderstorms, is, all in all, superior to most of the African climates, inasmuch as the rainfall is as nearly as possible that of London, and it falls at the period when most wanted, at the time of greatest warmth and most active vegetation. The productions of Natal are even more varied than those of the Cape, while arrowroot, sugar, cotton and Indian corn are staple articles. 
the great industries are cattle and sheep rearing, and as in all parts of South Africa, meat is excessively cheap, retailing at threepence or fourpence a pound. Natal was discovered by Vasco da Gama and received from him the name of Terra Natalis, land of the nativity, because of his arriving on Christmas Day. Until 1823 it was little known or visited. The settlement was then formed by a party of Englishmen who were joined by a number of dissatisfied Dutchmen from the Cape. In 1838 the British government took possession. There was a squabble, the colonists being somewhat defiant for a while, and some little fighting ensued. It was proposed by the settlers to proclaim the Republic of Natalia, but on the appearance of a strong British force they subsided quietly, and Natal was placed under the control of the Governor of the Cape. In 1856 it was erected into a separate colony. To moderate capitalists it offers many advantages. Land is granted on the easiest terms, usually four shillings per acre, and free grants are given, in proportion to a settler's capital. £500 capital receives a land order for 200 acres. An arrow root plantation and factory can be started for five or £600, and a coffee plantation for something over 1000 Sugar planting, etc., is much more expensive and would require for plant, etc., £5,000 or more. And now, on the way home from the African station, the good ship will pass close to, if indeed it does not touch at, the island of St Helena, a common place of refreshment for vessels sailing to the northward. Vessels coming southward rarely do so. Sailing ships can hardly make the island. It lies some 1,200 miles from the African coasts in mid-ocean. St Helena has much the appearance, seen from a distance, of the summit of some great submarine mountain, its rugged and perpendicular cliffs rising from the shore to altitudes from 300 to 1,500 feet. In a few scattered places there are deep precipitous ravines opening to the sea, whose embouchures form difficult but still possible landing places for the fishermen. In one of the largest of these, towards the northwest, the capital and port of the island, Jamestown, is situated. It is the residence of the authorities. The anchorage is good and sufficiently deep, and the port is well protected from the winds. The town is entered by an arched gateway, within which is a spacious parade lined with official residences, and faced by a handsome church. The town is in no way remarkable, but has well-supplied shops. The leading inhabitants prefer to live outside it on the higher and cooler plateaus of the island, where many of them have very fine country houses, foremost of which is a villa named Plantation House, belonging to the governor, surrounded by pleasant grounds, handsome trees and shrubs. In the garden grounds, tropical and ordinary fruits and vegetables flourish, the mango, banana, tamarind and sugar cane, the orange, citron, grape, fig and olive, equally with the common fruits of England. 
the yam and all the European vegetables abound. Three crops of potatoes have often been raised from the same ground in one year. The hills are covered with the cabbage tree and the logwood and gumwood trees. Cattle and sheep are scarce, but goats browse in immense herds on the hills. No beasts of prey are to be met, but there are plenty of unpleasant and poisonous insects. Game and fish are abundant, and turtles are often found. All in all, it is not a bad place for Jack after a long voyage, although not considered healthy. It has a military governor, and there are barracks. The interior is a plateau divided by low mountains, the former averaging 1,500 feet above the sea. The island is undoubtedly of volcanic origin. It was first discovered on the 22nd of May, St. Helena's Day, by Juan de Nova, a Portuguese. The Dutch first held it, and it was wrested from them first by England in 1673, Charles II soon afterwards granting it to the East India Company, who, with the exception of the period of Napoleon's imprisonment, held the proprietorship to 1834, when it became an appanage of the crown. The fame of the little island rests on its having been the prison of the great disturber of Europe. Every reader knows the circumstances which preceded that event. He had gone to Rochefort with the object of embarking from America, but finding the whole coast so blockaded as to render that scheme impracticable, surrendered himself to Captain Maitland, commander of the English man-of-war Bellerophon who immediately set sail for Torbay. No notice whatsoever was taken of his letter, an uncourteous proceeding to say the least of it towards a fallen foe, and on the 7th of August he was removed to the Northumberland, the flagship of Sir George Cockburn, which immediately set sail for St. Helena. On arrival, the imperial captive was at first lodged in a sort of inn, the following day, the ex-emperor and suite rode out to visit Longwood, the seat selected for his residence, and when returning noted a small villa with a pavilion attached to it, about two miles from the town, the residence of Mr. Balcombe, an inhabitant of the island. The spot attracted the emperor's notice, and the admiral, who had accompanied him, thought it would be better for him to remain there than to go back to the town, where the sentinels at the doors and the gaping crowds in a manner confined him to his chamber. The place pleased the emperor, for the position was quiet and commanded a fine view. The pavilion was a kind of summer house on a pointed eminence, about fifty paces from the house, where the family were accustomed to resort in fine weather, and this was the retreat hired for the temporary abode of the emperor. It contained only one room on the ground floor without curtains or shutters, and scarcely possessed a seat. And when Napoleon retired to rest, one of the windows had to be barricaded, so draughty was it, in order to exclude the night air, to which he had become particularly sensitive. What a contrast to the gay palaces of France! In December, the emperor removed to Longwood, 
riding thither on a small cape horse and in his uniform of the chasseur of the guards. The road was lined with spectators, and he was received at the entrance to Longwood by a guard under arms, who rendered the prescribed honour to their illustrious captive. The place, which had been a farm of the East India Company, is situated on one of the highest parts of the island, and the difference between its temperature and that of the valley below is very great. It is surrounded by a level height of some extent and is near the eastern coast. It is stated that continual and frequently violent winds blow regularly from the same quarter. The sun was rarely seen and there were heavy rainfalls. The water conveyed to Longwood in pipes was found to be so unwholesome as to require boiling before it was fit for use. The surroundings were barren rocks, gloomy deep valleys and desolate gullies, the only redeeming feature being a glimpse of the ocean on one hand. All this after La Belle France. Longwood as a residence had not much to boast of. The building was rambling and inconveniently arranged. It had been built up by degrees as the wants of its former inmates had increased. One or two of the suites slept in lofts, reached by ladders and trapdoors, the windows and beds were curtainless, and the furniture mean and scanty. Inhospitable and in bad taste, ye in power at the time. In front of the place, and separated by a tolerably deep ravine, the 53rd Regiment was encamped in detached bodies on the neighbouring heights. Here the caged lion spent the last five weary years of his life, till called away by the god of battles. End of chapter 12, part 2 Read by Jane Bennett